Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We like to do history with David Folkert's Landau, Deutsche Bank, Francine Laquan, London. I'm Tom Keen in New York. Let's get right to it. Morning mustard. Alberto Gallo at Algebraith writing up a Bloomberg View column, and this is on the great Minsky of Washington University, St. Louis, and Columbia. We may be approaching a second Minsky moment by keeping rates at record low levels. Central banks have made it easier for inefficient firms to survive as in a rising tide that lifts all boats. Last week, Chair Yellen said a financial crisis is unlikely to happen in David Folkert's Landau's lifetime if he were alive, if Minsky was alive, Minsky would be shaking his head. Shaking his head in London is David Folkert's uh, Landau. This speaks to shocks, to instabilities out there. Is sovereign debt, the growing debt, the size of the debt, is that a possibility to be an instability? Uh, it's that combined with the liquidity overhang that's in the system. I mean, you have to look at them together. Uh, there's no doubt. I think at this point to say that uh, we cannot foresee a financial crisis during our lifetime strikes me as uh, not having learned the lessons of the last uh, 30 years. As long as I've been in this profession, it's been the crisis every eight years, starting in 82 with that debt crisis and on and on and on tequila crisis, Asian crisis, and 2001 and 2007. So, and none of those, none of those we had ever anticipated. Uh, we, all, we can't quite see our way through how a crisis might happen. And, and so I think that leads me to be quite cautious about where we are right now. We've got a 12 trillion central bank overhead of liquidity. We have a, a, almost a 40 to 45% increase in uh, government debt outstanding of the major countries. Um, so, yeah, uh, and, and we have become very, very used to the, the, the calming influence of uh, QE. Uh, and so to think that there are no, lurk, no hidden dangers lurking in the system as rates go up, I think it is, uh, is foolhardy. Who's the adult in the room that can actually get us away from the dangers or preempt the dangers that you're just mentioning? It is the Fed. I believe that the Fed will lead the way with a gradual uh, rate increase, with very careful communications, and uh, with a very good understanding of uh, the risk and how the system works. When I think of the current Fed board with Yellen and, and, and people like Stan Fisher, um, there is little they do not understand about this, yes. Um, but I think it, it is important to recognize that rates, including at the short end, but also at the long end, are at a historical low. And they're completely out of whack. If you look at the numbers in the UK, for instance, the UK 10 years ago had the last increase, and you look at the constellation now of unemployment rates, inflation, right. and so they're much, they're much more calling for an increase in in rate increases now well, than 10 okay. years ago. Yet we're not doing it. We got to leave it there. David Fulkerslando, generous with your time today. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you in no. New York.
We are exceptionally lucky in the next half hour to have with us John Riding of RDQ Economics. He has defined the debate since the financial crisis began with sharp analysis of central bank policy in the American economy. And a special treat this morning to have with us Adam Posen, the head of the Peterson Institute, his public service to the Bank of England, and arguably with Richard Clarida, our two experts on the relationship of Germany to the United States. Adam Posen, let me begin with you with this G20 meeting. How will President Trump be greeted by this Germany you've studied for decades? Thank you for having me on, Tom. And in terms of Germany, we saw the big signal already a couple days ago. Chancellor Merkel, in all her campaign and speech materials, officially stopped referring to the United States as a friend. Now, that sounds pretty penny-ante, but for Merkel, who's a confirmed Atlanticist, who's an internationalist, and for Germany especially, that's a big shift. So there's going to be wariness. There isn't going to be confrontation. Maybe we have a generational shift, Adam Posen, with a funeral for Helmut Kohl last week. I was quite taken by Bill Clinton's comments as well. How will Mr. Trump be greeted? Do you just assume there will be protests on his travels across the continent of Europe? I think the Bill Clinton speech was wonderful in this case, and it obviously is falling on deaf ears both in Washington and Hamburg. Um, I think there will be protests. There are always protests at G20s these days, but with yeah. Mr. Trump, particularly on climate change, it'll get worse. John, writing with us. You know, John, it's wonderful to have you here in the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis. We're beginning our uh, coverage of that. You, know, you noticed coordinated chit-chat last week. Is banks coordinated their forward guidance? Is the monetary policy of Europe and the United States in sync, or do you still look at them as separate beasts? Well, I don't think it was coordinated in in the sense that there was any agreement to coordinate, but the message is clear. And I think that your uh, previous guest... uh, David Forbeslander. Exactly, the Deutsche Bank chief economist, was right. There's this large central bank overhang. Um, There are potential financial risks building. And it's a theme that all... Uh, at least a lot of the central banks, particularly Bank of England, the ECB, and, of course, leading uh, the Fed, uh, is on because there are risks building. You you had a headline story today about uh, problems in Norway's housing market. I mean, that's maybe a small thing. There's Venezuela. There's Argentina issuing a 100-year bond as if we hadn't seen Argentina default uh, a few times within the last couple of decades. So... Um, I think there is a a feeling that central banks need to get on with the balance sheet and start uh, reducing uh, the size of uh, uh, debt that's held. Yeah, Adam, do do you worry about these central bank policies and policy mistakes? Francine, I think, unfortunately, everything uh, your guest just said and most of what Fulkert's Landau said is totally wrong. The Fed is going to continue tightening for a bit. The ECB and Bank of England came out of the BIS meeting saying, talking tough, but they're not going to do it. Um, Then there's no reason for them to. talk. At the Bank of England, there's an argument on the macro prudential side that there's huge imbalances in terms of savings and uh, real estate and credit in the U.K. specifically, but that's what the macro pru, the financial policy committee, is supposed to deal with, so interest rates don't have to do it. And given the inflation and uh, other problems in the UK, I think they'll be reluctant to move. ECB even more so. Uh, Weidmann is talking because he's running for ECB president, not because there's the need for a policy change. Uh, Fed is also going to basically wimp out probably starting next spring. 
And finally, all this talk about, I saw Volker Landau, you tweeted, was talking about the pain, or your guest just talked about Argentina. Let's get real. Uh, Argentina may be a very foolish thing to buy a 100-year bond in, but it's not going to affect anybody if anything happens in Argentina. All right. John needs a right of reply because Posen, uh, John Toes, says you're completely wrong. Well, time will tell. And uh, as Focus Landa reminded, people fail to anticipate the next financial crisis and they come along uh, every so often. Uh, he, he said every eight years. I, I don't know that there's necessarily that rhythmic a cycle to it. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we do have a habit of ignoring the lessons of the previous crisis. And uh, uh, here we are coming up on the 10th anniversary of the uh, worst financial crisis since the <coughs> Great Depression. Um, but it's the wrong lesson, guys. I mean, it's not about monetary policy tightness. It's about financial supervision laxity and regulatory laxity. And in the data, David, David's assertion about the every eight years, which I agree with you, is a little too rhythmic, is misleading. If you go to the Reinhardt Rogoff or the IMF data set, there's negative autocorrelation of financial crises. Look at Japan, Canada, Sweden. Once you've had a financial crisis, you usually don't have one for decades. Look at the U.S. after the 30s. But, but so I think people are chasing ghosts. John Ryden, but, jump in here. Yeah, but I was just saying, but the problem with macroprudential is it's an unused tool. In fact, it's not even clear what the tool is. I remember being in an Atlanta Fed conference and uh, former Treasury Secretary Pop Rubin said, the reality of macroprudential policy is that there is no reality. Um, so, again, it's about monitoring, trying to pick <clears> up <throat> the uh, vibrations, but... <clears throat> You have all this liquidity in the system, and that does encourage risk-taking. Well, let's go to this. Within this no, no this liquidity doesn't do anything. That's the whole point okay. of the last 10 years. We're dealing here with, with wonderful economic theory for a Wednesday. Let me get back control of this as Adam Posen steals the show, as he's been known to do. Adam Posen, it's about Dooley, Garber, and DFL versus a lot of people like you that really disagree with flow analysis. Has to do, folks, with stock and flow, and we're not going to get into it. What I want to say, Adam Posen, is the overlay that John Riding and DFLC is an odd fixed income market. Do you have confidence that central banks can find a stable trajectory from where interest rates are now, both on a nominal and a real basis? As I well, two things, Tom, and I'm sorry to be overstepping, but this is important oh, stop. stuff. Please, I'm kidding. First, 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 first thing is uh, that in the short-term forecast, and that was where I was primarily different, Agreed. distinguishing from David, and that I just don't think they're going to do very much. But in the second point, if things prove unstable because of It'll be because of real reasons, like the collapse of productivity growth in the U.K. or the collapse of wage growth in the U.S. and many other countries. That is what will destabilize things. It's not going to be central do, banks tightening. The central Dr. banks Posen, are just followers. Do, do you see wage growth occurring, and will we observe that Friday in the jobs report? Uh, interview after interview, I don't see people talking about appropriate wage growth for politicians or central bank heads. Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's sort of stock and flow. I mean, on a rate basis, there's a legitimate case to be made. I, I, thought, I, I don't think it's open and shut. But there's a legitimate case to be made that wages are finally picking up a bit in the U.S., almost in line with a very flat Phillips curve. And so unemployment's going to stop falling and wages will go up a small amount. That's the flow basis. The stock is, remember, that the wage growth in the U.S. and a number of other countries, with exceptions like Germany, 
um, has been very poor for over a decade. And so if you're going to catch up, then it's a problem. But, but on the it's subject... Uh, but on the subject of wage growth, productivity yep. growth in the U.S. has been very poor for the last 10 years. And our analysis suggests the primary reason for that is inadequate capital spending. Um, and so wage growth isn't out of line at all with what the economy is producing. Now, if we have wage increases ahead of productivity gains, that's going to continue to squeeze profits and undermine the capital spending story. So my concern isn't that wage growth is too low. My concern is productivity growth is too low, which is the real underlying reason behind the poor wage gains. Yeah, except for Um, two things. First is the profit rate's been going up for years. So the idea that profits are being squeezed is is wrong. So you're right that wage growth in the U.S. has been less than productivity, so we don't expect big wage growth. I mean, excuse me, wage growth has continued, productivity has been lousy, you're right, so we shouldn't expect big wage growth. But there's still been additional profits going up. And the second thing is, it's not just the investment cycle. The causality runs the other way. The reason people aren't investing yeah. is because they don't see the productivity okay. growth. What I love about this is the two of you are lighting it up on emails. Thank you for the many responses in here. Here's a partial <laughs> score, folks. Riding seven, posing five. We'll see if we can come back and have Dr. Posen That's not better fair, Tom. Here. Well, we'll see. You know, No, it's great. This is what we love about Bloomberg Surveillance, a debate that's out there. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, Incorporated. Let's bring in Megan Green. Let's get right to it uh, this morning. Megan Green is with Manulife, uh, looking at not only the international economy, but maybe focus here more on the U.S. economy as well. Uh, which corner, Megan, good morning, is, is, is Chair Yellen painted into? It, it, within the many themes of domestic economics, how has she painted herself into a corner? Is it about wage growth? No. I don't think it is about wage growth. I think right now, actually, a lot is about inflation. Um, and I'll be interested to see what comes out in the minutes later today on the FOMC's discussion around inflation, because it, it has been pretty paltry recently. The Fed says they're looking through it, but um, but maybe they shouldn't be. Um, so we'll learn more about their discussions around that. And, and I do think that that's... <coughs> Is driving a lot. Um, I do think that the Fed is painted into a corner, though. Um, not not Chair Yellen specifically, but the Fed is um, in terms of starting to shrink their balance sheet before Chair Yellen's um, term is up next year, early next year. So I do think that they will probably get that process started because they would like it to be automatic and transparent. Um, and already running by the time that she leaves so that um, so yeah. it can't be reversed. Yeah, I, I mean, and with, within all this, how critical is the jobs report this Friday? And I don't mean the unemployment rate. I mean just the whole thing and also the wage dynamics as well. For someone like you, is it eh or does it really matter for July 26th? Um, I always think that you know each individual jobs report is one data point. Um, so it's not worth obsessing over. Um, but I would say that the trend going into this jobs report is paltry wage growth, um, which, which in theory, if we had strong wage growth, it would feed into inflation data and the Fed would be hitting its dual mandate. Um, 
And it's not now because even though unemployment's so low, inflation's looking pretty bad. And, and I just don't see any reason to expect that we will see stronger wage growth this time around. Um, every time you get a single data point of good wage growth, you know, analysts will all say, well, now finally wage growth is coming in because the labor market is so tight. Um, and it never lasts. And I um, we can expect to continue. So I think we'll continue mm-hmm. to see pretty bad wage growth. Most of our jobs being added in really low wage, low hour sectors. And that's partly because what we consume now these days is mostly services, which tend to be low wage, low hour um, jobs. And also because we have such a glut of cheap labor globally. So these are big kind of global drivers um, that aren't going to change month to month. Megan Green, of course, with uh, Manulife based uh, in Boston. And Megan, let me ask you about uh, what we could learn today from the Federal Reserve from their last meeting now, I guess, three weeks uh, ago about the balance sheet. We were talking uh, with John Riding at the top of the show about timing. Is there more to it than that? What could we learn about, say, their, their composition of the unwind? So I think we know a bunch of details now about the caps, for example, how they plan to make it as transparent and automatic as possible. I really do think timing is the key thing we could learn about the balance sheet specifically this afternoon. Um, but I think there are a few other key things to look at. I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the discussion around how they're really looking at inflation, <clears throat> but also financial st- mm-hmm. stability, which they haven't really talked about publicly, but um, they've got to be concerned about given yeah. that, you know, U.S. equities just continue to soar, even though policy isn't coming through, economic growth isn't coming through to back it up. So right. there should be a big question about are valuations <clears throat> going to catch up with the markets or is there going right. to be correction? On our surveillance feed right now, the President of the United States walking across the tarmac. David Gura, this is his second big trip. Mrs. Trump uh, with him uh, as well as they go to Air Force One. Um, the entourage, I, I would say, measured. Maybe a lot of people on board uh, right now. The President goes up the stairs. They don't They don't have a walkway like we do. They, they get the stairs. To the, yeah, to the Gulf Stream. It's yeah. an easier, easier uh, entry for us to yeah. get into that, into that plane. Yeah. Uh, but he, he's off to Warsaw. He'll speak there the, tomorrow. Well, for the Gulf Stream, we just got one of those little plastic step things. Yeah. And, over at Costco. Highly portable. President waving now, the traditional wave as he begins. What sort of, it's a sort of wave. There's a wave. There's more of a wave by the, there, there we go. Now <laughs> the third wave, we got the presidential <laughs> wave. Yeah. Uh, wave. And, and, you know, speaking to Francine Lacroix, Matt Miller with coverage of the G20 He'll be there, uh, yeah. meetings, and the meeting with Mr. Putin, scheduled, I believe, I could <laughs> say that. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. He's got to be focused on North Korea. Uh, Megan, on the, on the issue of the G20, do we expect much to be discussed or to come out of this centering on uh, economics? Is this going to be squarely about geopolitics and less so about uh, the economic picture? So I think that's right. I think the focus will be on geopolitics. We might get something out on trade, which is you know regularly a focus of these G20 meetings these days. Um, but I do think geopolitics will probably overshadow that. Let me ask you a, a, a bit about sort of what we're seeing when it comes to, to the consumer in the U.S. Uh, has the picture of the U.S. consumer improved at all? What are the indications you're looking at to, to see how the consumer's doing? So all of the confidence data for the consumer looks fantastic and has looked great um, since before the election, but, you know, particularly um, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, we've seen the consumer um, confidence measures um, soar. Um, the problem is, is that there's little... Um, indication of how much consumers are actually going to spend. What we've found generally is that incomes tend to affect consumer spending more than just pure confidence. And so the soft data, all the confidence data looks great. If you look at the hard data, so retail sales, um, new car registrations, it looks decidedly 
less good. Um, new car registrations looked really awful at the end of the first quarter of this year. They've since come back a little bit, but they're, but they're not looking great. Um, retail sales have just been bumbling along in positive territory, um, but nothing to write home about. And of course, the consumer drives every recovery in the U.S. has done since you know in our modern history. So the consumer is the thing to be looking at in this recovery. But it, there's little evidence that the confidence is really translating into more consumer spending. But within this is just a simple core idea of where the economy is. Have we reached escape velocity or do we struggle now in America between an okay quarter, a lousy quarter, an okay quarter, a lousy quarter in that? Do you, do, within the, the micro data, and as you say, some of it's optimistic, can you say we've reached an escape velocity to some form of consistency? So I don't think so. We're growing above our potential GDP growth, so that's pretty good. Our potential GDP growth is around 1.5%, mm. and we're around 2%. Well, so. Okay, but is that eurosclerosis? Did you just define eurosclerosis? Um, to, to some degree, 2% isn't enough to address the inequality issues that have arisen, for example. Um, but among developed countries, 2% growth is, is actually pretty good. So we haven't hit escape velocity in the sense that we're going to go ahead now and grow by four percent as the administration would like and expects, I don't think. I think fundamentally the U.S. is a 2% economy, but again, that's better than our potential GDP growth, so that's not terrible. Megan Greenland with us from Manual Lifetime. I'm looking here at our Jennifer Jacobs tweeting about who is accompanying the president on that trip. Uh, Melania, as you said, his, his wife, the first lady, will be there. Gary Cohn going with him uh, as well, uh, and uh, Keith yeah. Schiller. Uh, as well. I, I miss this. Michael Barr, you're supposed to tell us when the president trumps, and particularly when they're important. Uh, the, these set of Trump, of, of tweet, Trump tweets, are, he's going to getting ready to, to leave for Poland, and we just saw him get in the airplane. David Gura, uh, the United States made some of the worst trade deals in world history. Why should we continue these deals with countries that do not help us? And then this one's more important. I'm sure Michael Barr is going to go into this in more detail. Trade between China and North Korea grew almost 40% in the fourth quarter. So much for China working with us. Wow. Yeah, but we had to give it a try. Uh, he continues there with, with that tweet. I'll point out what I said with uh, Adam Posen just a few moments ago. The, the Mar-a-Lago summit uh, took place uh, just, I think, three months ago, maybe three months ago. And then yeah. uh, Terry Branstad, the former governor of Iowa, has been on the ground in Beijing as the U.S. ambassador to China uh, for just six days. Uh, so uh, a, a particularly... Uh, important, I guess it's yeah. an important tweet from the president there about the relationship between the U.S. Yeah. Uh, and China. And our thanks to Megan Green. Uh, Megan Green, the chief economist at Manulife, joining us on our phone lines. This is truly one of our most popular guests. Luis Yamada joining us on our phone lines. Uh, Louise does charts and does them with a great respect for what economics and what fundamentals are doing as well. Louise, wonderful to speak to you again. Thank you Thank so you much so for much. Uh, quoting Martin Zweig, as you do on page four, the late Marty Zweig, don't fight the Fed. What do your charts say about what Chair Yellen is doing? Well, interestingly, the uh, two-year note is moving up, and the 10-year, which had broken support, has started to turn around a little to move higher. Um, but I think that in terms of the equity market, uh, we were becoming concerned in May about the parabolic in NASDAQ and some of the technology stocks. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that we don't have major tops here. You still have uptrends in place. You have moving averages rising, and right. our monthly momentum is still positive. So this could be just a speed bump that allows for consolidation that could be followed by, you know, mm-hmm. another rally. Um, but I think that there are some external things that need to right. be watched. Okay, as, and of as, course, the jargon with Louise Yamada is like, she's a pro. She's not going to dumb it down for Tom <laughs> King. For the, me, par- no. <laughs> the parabolic is the acceleration or second derivative in a semi-log space. Do you like that, Louise? I hope I got that right. That on the two-year <laughs> yield chart, on the chart Janet Yellen cares about, there was huge distribution across all of 2016. I'm going to make it even... 15 months distribution at 0.80 as a center tendency, and we've lifted up in an organized manner. Can you say escape velocity on the two-year yield to a higher yield, a lower note price? Oh, I think so. I think that that's where we're really going to see the change, the uh, declines that you were talking about in 2016 essentially slipped under and bounced right back up over the 2013 uptrend. We've been talking about the six- to eight-year basing process. Um, In the interest rate profile, I would say, because rate changes or rate reversals from falling rate cycles have historically taken two to 14 years. So six to eight years doesn't surprise us. You're going through 140. I think 160 is next on the two years. Yeah. And David, one of the charms of Ms. Yamada is she has a courage to look at a long-term X-axis. Yamada goes out <sighs> longer on charts, which is a rare commodity today. Louise, we were talking with Adam Posen a few moments ago, and he was uh, expressing his uh, frustration with the fact that we don't really have a good definition of what the neutral rate uh, is. How does that complicate uh, your outlook, not knowing exactly what the neutral rate is? But I think that that complicates everybody, yes. including the Fed. I mean, they've even acknowledged to a certain extent that they, you know, they're not sure exactly where it is. I think she's looking at two and a half percent. So it's it's going to be a, a test as we go. And if we move carefully and see what the results are, she raises rates. There are times when you're in a in a structural bull market, which we think we we still are. Um, when the rate rises don't start affecting the equities until a fifth or a sixth rate rever- you know, rate rise. Uh, but we're at the point where I think we have to start paying attention. Taking a look at the market in sort of a bipedal way, as you do, looking at the first leg there between 2009 and 2015 is the first leg up. <clears throat> Here we are in, in the second. Uh, one, one, one would think that we are due for a correction at some point soon. What are the indications you're looking at? Do you see any that a correction is on the near-term horizon? Well, no, except for the the fact that in two, the beginning in 2009, after about a year and a half, you got your first setback. It was just a consolidation corrective phase, but, you know, we're a year and a half into this now, and I think that it's possible that we have um, mm-hmm. a more of a corrective phase. But, you know, if you even <clears throat> just came back to the trend line, mm. that's a single-digit pullback. And for NASDAQ, it's barely 10%. You have a textbook chart, very quickly here, Louise, I want to come back on golden oil. You have a textbook Yamada chart on consumer discretionary sector. It's been a boom within this boom bull market. Can you say higher, higher on 26 and 28 multiple consumer discretionaries? 
consumer discretionaries have been a mixed bag. You've had the retail there that has done incredibly poorly, and the relative strengths have continuously gone to new lows over an extended right. period of time. Uh, and then you have others which have included media and, and, and some of the cable and satellite and those areas that have done particularly well. So I think one has to really divide out which stocks, which groups you're talking about in consumer discretionary. Okay. Overall, it's not performing the way the financials have just turned up mm-hmm. as technology has rested and industrials may be coming in and healthcare, but particularly the uh, um, right. equipment, the equipment department in uh, healthcare. Well, let's come back. Luis Yamato with us. And I know, folks, you want to hear about golden oil. What a range for oil as well. We'll come back with Luis Yamato. And we say a particularly warm good morning this folk, this morning to our listeners in Boston who are listening on Bloomberg 1061, uh, our new new station in uh, in Boston, our new home for Bloomberg Radio uh, in the Bay State. And uh, Luis, let me ask you, you look at so many ratios. Let me ask you about one in particular. That is uh, the ratio of emerging markets and developed markets. When you look at that right now, what's it telling you? It's telling me we're in a bit of a neutral range. Uh, if it were to lift through this year-plus trading range that it's been in, then you'd be- begin to see the emerging markets outperform, but it hasn't happened yet. So I'd say they're sort of in a tug-of-war. Emerging markets haven't made it through the uh, longer-term downtrend on their own, and the developed markets, are. some of them are doing well, but some of the emerging are doing well, too. Um, I mean, you've got the DAX at new highs, the uh, yeah. Taiwan, Kospi, India, Jakarta, even in Mexico here, of course. So it's, it's a uh, tug-of-war. Mm. Louise, the uh, world stops when you come on, is people just simply want to know Louise Yamada on gold. Like oil, it's sort of been blah. Are they just in these these ranges, this strange phrase, ranges? Is that where we are, home on the gold range? Well, I think gold, we've had, we have questioned whether or not the rally that we had in 2016 or this year is, is nothing more than a cyclical bull and a structural bear. Um, it has not been able to definitively break through the 2011 yeah. downtrend. And I think what's even more important is the ratio, talk about ratios, the relative performance between equities and gold. And um, those have topped with major um, equity market tops, 1929, 1968, 2000, and moved into outperformance of gold as the equities undergo bear markets. But in 2010, we saw a turn in that ratio in which the yeah. equities are outperforming gold. And we don't see any reason for that to change in the near future. How do you respond, particularly on a Friday, Luis Yamada, to all the gloom articles that are out there? I mean, you're, you're someone with a a pencil and paper in your hands and decades of experience. When you see the world's coming to an end, go sell this, sell that, don't be in this, that. How do you respond to that? I tend to look at them, ignore them, and go with the price. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have to, if you you have enough faith in in technical analysis and the idea that in price there is knowledge, you have to go and look at the price. And a lot of times things that are being recommended just don't have the price patterns to back them up. And uh, I think that's a story of gold. I can't tell you how many people send me positive articles on gold. And, you know, we're just not seeing that in the chart. How about the the dollar chart? How about the the DXY chart? 
Well, the dollar, uh, unfortunately, was in a nice breakout there through, uh, through a two-year trading range between 93 and 100, and it hasn't been able to sustain the targets uh, at higher levels, come right back into that trading range. And it's about mid-range now, close to 96, 97. Uh, but it's possible here, both momentum models, weekly and monthly, are, are uh, uh, negative. Yeah. So it's possible it comes back and tests 93. I mean, what's going on in Europe and the end of their easing, so to speak, is having an effect. And now we go, folks, where few, they fear to tread. Oil. Louise, oil is, is maddening to look at with a soup, a toxic soup in it. But what does the price action really see? What I would suggest, respectively, folks, from March, we've seen a set of lower highs and three lower lows as well. Louise, interpret. Exactly correct. Did I do okay? <laughs> you did. Can I go home great. now? Okay. Yep, it's just what I was going to tell you. Well, and go not ahead. only that, but you're now below the moving averages. You've broken yeah. the 2016 uptrend, and it looks like every time price starts to go up, somebody's there to sell it. Yeah, and what's so important here, folks, and this, this i, I got to go for brownie points here with Ms. Yamada, David. <laughs> We've one, two, three times gone perfectly to two standard deviations uh-huh. of volatility, and we're there again at 4643. And the vectors going from, as Gartman would say, from the upper left to the lower right. Is that okay, Louise? That's fine. I'm taking off Thursday and Friday. Okay, David. Louise, let me just ask you, let's close here by talking about equities a a little more. And and I wonder when you look at sectors in specific, let's talk about technology. What are you seeing in the technology sector today? Uh, Well, the technology sector is underperforming slightly, but it's still within the relative strength uptrend. Um, So... It's not, um, it's not something that's telling us that it's any more than a speed bump. But I think that we have to watch for the potential for contagion or for this uh, consolidation, if that's what we're going to call it, to, to pull back a little farther. Um, but overall, technology has been uh, mm-hmm. outperforming for so long that I think it would be healthy if it had a rest, but you haven't broken the uh, you haven't broken the relative strength uptrend. You could if uh, if right. technology comes back further, but I think you can take that ten percent in the Nasdaq and and maybe turn up again. But we'll have to see it as we go. We do have negative divergences in some of our technical indicators, and as those extend over time, um, right. you can start defining a problem. We don't necessarily think it's tomorrow. Right. The AD line is still high and the monthly momentum is yeah. positive. Louise, thank you so much. Louise Yamada. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.